Hey, Typology Tribe, Ian Cron here, uh, sitting with my dear friend, my engineer, my producer, my inspiration, my muse. <laughs> hey, Ian. Anthony Skinner. We both got guitars on. I, we've just been kind of like playing songs here. Yeah. I, I think just now I was singing uh, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right by Bob Dylan. There it is, friends, right the there in the man. background. In fact, right now there's a poster right behind me on the wall oh that's right famous one of bob dylan columbia studios sitting at the piano with his sunglasses on he was bad man oh yeah neumann microphone harmonica around his neck shades on good lord (laughs) he had it going on when he's good he's nobody better man nobody better so what's what's uh what's happening how you doing Ian? i'm good so where were you last night i was flying back from san francisco where i was at a Helen Palmer Enneagram training. Oh, that's awesome. Tell me about it. Yeah, man. So I'm, I decided, you know, I learned one way of, of sort of, you know, there's like multiple schools around the sure. Enneagram, right? And and I really love how Helen Palmer's is based all around panels, mm. you know, having panels of types. And when we've right. done panels on the show, right. I just totally loved it. It's like so much yeah. better to hear others. So yeah. what she teaches is how to use panels up front as you teach. Mm-hmm. And like, basically, you're just learning the art of interviewing. Right. So it's not me talking for eight hours right. about types describing it. Right. It's them describing their own them, lives. So anyway, yeah. Cool. Flying back. What did you do? I, awesome. What did you do? Uh, I was down at the Ryman. Oh, at the Ryman yep. Auditorium. Saw Johnny Lang and Doyle Bramhall II. I beg your pardon. <laughs> what did you do? What, what did you do last night? Johnny Lang and Doyle Bramhall II with MK. It was amazing. You saw Doyle Bramhall. <laughs> I, I was on a plane. Coming back from in turbulence on the way back from San Francisco, and you were in the Ryman Auditorium seeing two of the best artists around. Seriously, like it'll be the highlight of blah, blah, 2018 blah, for blah, sure. Blah, 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 yes. blah, blah, blah. Amazing blah. night. Thank you for sharing those tickets <laughs> with me. So we've got this amazing, amazing show today, man. We have the, the author, the spoken word poet, um, She's a speaker. She's an event host. She's Amina Brown. Mm-hmm. Do you do you do you know Amina? I do not, and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So she's she's pretty incredible, uh, and uh, she has a new book out. It's called How to Fix a Broken Record: Thoughts on Vinyl Records, Awkward Relationships, and Learning to Be Myself. <laughs> Love that title. I know, man. How to Fix a Broken Record, which is like so. The whole thing about this book is it's about like how your soul is like a big record collection. Mm, wow, what a great image. Yeah, it's like like you know you got a soundtrack for different parts of your life. Like so she's got one for dating, uh, one for a bunch of different stuff like right. how and how each one there's like like also like there's all these broken messages in our lives mm. that that run like like a recordings in the background, their misbeliefs. And this is all really tied to the Enneagram because every type on the Enneagram has misbeliefs and, and uh, errant unconscious motivations that, uh, you know, get you to do and think and feel things that just are not in your best interest. So I, I love the fact that she's on. She loves the Enneagram. She's an Enneagram too. Yeah. Right. And and uh, so that's pretty cool. But I, so I have a question for you, though, because and I know I'm springing this on you and, yeah. you know, we're, you're not entirely ready for it. But, <laughs> but all right. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. I'll answer them. I, I, okay. I haven't really prepped either. All right. So songs that reflect different uh, dimensions of your life. OK, like oh, sound okay. like the soundtrack right. for your for your life. Now, you're a four. I'm a four. Right. I'll, I'll be curious to see if as our types, our Enneagram types, the being the romantics, the individuals, if that affects <laughs> soundtracks of our lives. OK, right. right. All right. So. Okay. Yeah. All, right, all right, so no thinking marriage. What do you, what do you got for marriage? I would say uh, got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. And I hope your wife, uh, you know, listens to the show and thoroughly enjoys your answer. Oh, no. Um, for real, something in the way she moves. Oh, or she moves in mysterious oh. ways. Oh, no. Nice. Yeah, baby. That is nice, right? I actually came up with, uh, let me see, peaceful, easy feeling, because Annie's uh, a nine. Yeah, yeah. Right? I like that. She's a nine, I like man. That. I got a peaceful, easy feeling. That's nice. Yeah. Oh, actually, I, I probably could have used, uh, let me think. Uh, oh, Peace Train. 
Why not Peace Train by Cat Stevens? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, right? man. She's dude. a nine. Peace Train. She's the man. Ride on the Peace Train. Yeah. Uh, let's try dating. How about, give me a song that goes to soundtrack for your dating life. <sighs> dating. Uh, probably something like uh, Coldplay's Fix You. <laughs> Oh. How about this one? One is the loneliest. <laughs> uh, My dating life was one. Uh, okay, uh, high school. What's the soundtrack to high school? Probably. Um, you may not have heard this band, but these guys are actually friends of mine. Great band, The Daylights. Boy on the Moon. Ooh, that's very forish. Give me, give me very a lyric. Very much lyric forish. From, give me a lyric. From. Sure, I'll give you up to the first chorus that I can remember. My life is different, way up here on the moon. No one is listening, I assume. You've got to go to the top of the world to see me. Go to the top of the world. The boy on the moon's getting restless. I should have never wished for this. Sad and all alone. The boy on the moon, sick of crying. Tried everything to get back. Get back home. Oh my gosh, that is so four. The whole song is four. Oh my gosh. I'll I'll have to... break this whole song out for you sometime but the whole it's so far it's crazy <laughs> and it's an ode to melancholy the whole thing yeah oh nice yeah okay mine would be even the losers by tom petty <laughs> <laughs> perfect what a great song what a great song oh man i miss tom but, petty already i know i know golly well okay we could talk about this forever amina's got songs for different areas of her life but more importantly this book really is about the messages that we get in our heads that aren't mm. true, that, you know, they're broken records. Mm-hmm. We got to do something about them, reclaim our lives. This yes. is going to be a great show. Everybody, here's my interview with Amina Brown. Poet, author, speaker, Amina Brown, welcome to Typology. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk about all the things. Well, I'm, uh, I am thrilled about your new book. I mean, first of all, it is such a great premise. This, well, I mean, the hook, you know, is the title, How to Fix a Broken Record. Thoughts on vinyl records, awkward relationships, and learning to be myself. I mean, I don't know who came up with that. Did you come up with that title? I did. I came up with the title, and then uh, Zondervan and I went back and forth carving the subtitle. <laughs> yes. So that, that was a group input. <laughs> yes. I know that feeling. And uh, man, I hope it's doing well out there, because man, the book came out in November 2017, and um, it's a lot of work, man, putting a book out man. there. Books are so much work and, and so much work on so many levels, I think, Ian, that like you're not always prepared. It's like emotional work. It's creative work. It's sort of marketing, PR, <laughs> design. I mean, it's a lot that goes into the process. I, I think no one is ever prepared for how it feels when it's out there now. You, you know, know? Uh, I used to tell people, Writing a book is easy compared to releasing and marketing it. Right. But, yeah, I could kind of see that. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, man, now you got to go hustle it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Think, yeah. You know, that's like that's like an insult to injury. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, no, I'm exhausted from writing. And now you want me to go out and hustle it. Good Lord. It's a lot of work. But I think your book right. is well worth the hustle and for people to to read it and uh, so give folks the premise of the book yeah I was trying to think about a way to describe sort of how it happens these messages we have that end up in our in our mind and our soul and they just play on repeat all the time the initial image that came to me was actually uh, the old film strips mm-hmm. from school. And um, I was having a conversation with my dad. And it was like the end of that conversation. It was like my soul felt like that film strip flapping at the end. Like I'd had this recording playing, you know, based on some family things that had happened, you know. And that conversation with my dad just felt like this revelation mm. had happened, that it ended that recording. And that's what made me think, well, some something that was broken got fixed just now how do you fix it but then i thought well you can't do how to fix a film strip that's just weird and there's going to be a generation of people <laughs> that are not going to understand that yep so that's what made me think oh a broken record's closest to it and then that gave me opportunity to write about music and vinyl which is something i really mm. really love well i i just want to say that um 
Uh, I am old enough to remember records. I'm old enough to remember skipping records and needles that get caught in grooves and can't get out that keep repeating. And I, like you, I mean, this is, you know, as a therapist, I mean, one of the things that, that, um, that we try to do is help people bring to conscious awareness these mistaken beliefs and messages that get embedded in our souls. And we don't even know they're there, but they are powerfully influencing our personalities. In other words, the way that we habitually think, act, and feel, they, they color the lenses through which we, we see the world. And they, so much of the time, they're behind the wheel of our, of our cars and driving them. Absolutely. And it takes different points of life to happen to go, why do I keep getting stuck right here? Mm. And what is it that I believe or uh, that I think about myself or that I think about this circumstance or these people or whatever those things are? What is it that's inside that's keeping me stuck? I think that idea of not wanting to be stuck is something that most, if not all of us as humans share. We hate that. We want to get unstuck, but we can't get our life unstuck if our are inside things that we believe and value don't get unstuck in the process. Totally. In fact, I uh, I was saying to a friend the other day that when you say to somebody or you ask the question of somebody, so tell me, where are you, where do you get, where are you stuck right now in your life? They never, ever, ever come back to you and say, what do you mean by stuck? <laughs> like, right. Everybody right. knows, man. Like when you say the word stuck, they go, oh, yeah, I totally, I get it. I know, oh, I mean, I know where I'm stuck. But they do. They usually have two or three places. They know, man, I'm stuck this place in my marriage or in my heart or something. Well, so I'm going to get down and out with you. Where are you stuck right now in your, your life? Now, you're a two on the Enneagram. Uh, yes. that's, a, that's a helper, so, you know, sometimes called the giver. I like what Beatrice Chestnut calls him, which is the befriender. Um, I like that better, actually. Yeah, why? Well, you know, when I first was discovering Enneagram due to the prodding and the peer pressure from a friend, <laughs> <laughs> which may be how a lot of people enter Enneagram yes. conversation, um, I I don't know what, I guess I wanted, I wanted what came out to be like, this is the best of who I am. I am this amazing, bold, adventurous, whoever this person is, you know, and when it got down to it and it was like, wow, I'm a helper. Really, guys? Mm. This is what I have? It felt like the least sexy of the Enneagram, you know? It's right. Like... <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I like the befriender. I feel like that feels a little more like, all right, I can have something. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, um, I've, I've been toying with this idea. So in with the Enneagram, we, we spoke earlier in, in, on a scale of one to five, you, you, you called yourself a, a two, a newbie to the yes. Enneagram. Yes. So there are levels of health, right? You've got, uh, you're healthy in your personality. You're sort of in the average space in your personality and the unhealthy space. And I've been toying with this idea that actually those are probably three different names of the type. So maybe when you're in a healthy space as a, as a two, you're the befriender. But when you're in the average space, which is where people live a lot, you're the helper. <laughs> and when you go down to that unhealthy space, you know, maybe you're the calculated giver. Mm-hmm. you know, or the manipulative giver. And, you know, we can zoom around all day long. Anyway, that you made me think of that because uh, I think sometimes that might be helpful. People realize that maybe there's three different names in there depending on where you ah. are in your health, you know? Yeah, which is like a good way to assess. And, and some of it's sort of the, your visceral response, I think, yeah. to those words, to your type. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's some visceral response in there that's like, yeah, that is me, even if I don't yeah, like it. Yeah, and, and maybe... If you the more resistance you have to it, maybe the, the the more carefully you have to look at it, you know, like because your resistance yeah. might be an indication that it actually is a fairly good in, you know reflection of 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 who you are. So going back to it, because I'm not letting us off the hook. Where where are you stuck in your life right now? Is a two on the enneagram? Well, you know, what's interesting is even though I was resistant a bit to the to the idea that I was a two, the more I looked into what it is, you know, to be a two, the strengths and weaknesses of that, I was like, yeah, okay, that's definitely me. And I think one of the places where I have been stuck in the process of trying to get unstuck right now is in environments where I could lead. Sometimes I do not lead and instead choose to help when I would actually be more of a help if I would Ooh, leave. Can you give me an example of that? Like, or 
Like, I'm just, I'm very, and I guess these are probably two characteristics. I'm very much a team player. I've been like that a long time. When I worked in corporate America, I loved, there were a lot of things about working in corporate America I didn't like, but I loved that we had a team. There was a team of us, you know, working together and each person sort of playing their role and you're helping this person, that person, you know, do their best job. You're doing your best job. Everybody's like aiming towards a goal. And even though I work for myself now, my husband and I own our business together. Um, so we are a team, <laughs> the two of us, but we don't have this like larger team of other people. We sort of work in teams with people like event-based. So we might travel to Tennessee and be a part of an event there. And we have to kind of jump into that teamwork. Well, I like to walk into situations and see like who the players are, you know, who's in the room here. I also like to see uh, who here really needs to lead. <laughs> because I could lead, but I don't always need to. So who here needs to lead? And a lot of times I will say to that person internally, you know, just like slide out of the way, let that person lead. And to give you an example, I had an opportunity to uh, go to Rwanda last summer. And I had this idea that I wanted to lead a team of black women on this trip to Rwanda in partnership with African New Life. Well, when I had the idea initially, it was sort of like, I kept wanting to go to people to go, I have this idea. What do you think of it? What do you think of it? And I think I was waiting for someone to go, oh, it's great. Let's do it. And when they said, let's do it, they meant I will <laughs> sort of lead the charge and you, you know, can come alongside me. But everyone I went to was like, you lead this, Amina. You lead this. You lead this. Like not leaving me as much room to hide in certain ways. So I think there have been some places, particularly in the last two years of my life, that my sort of in the weakness of being a two, I have chosen in some situations to hide when I had an opportunity to step up. I'm glad to say this opportunity over that summer, I chose to step up and everyone sort of came around that. We still were a team. But instead of me being in this place of sort of, I help best by stepping back, I was actually more helpful by stepping up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there are still situations where my first instinct is the ways I can step back. And I'm really trying to work within the last several months to really get unstuck about that, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, if you're a two, you know that... Uh, uh, a lot of times, uh, twos are known as um, great powers behind the throne. They they love to be number two uh, and be behind the throne. Like so, if in a corporate setting, um, they're often the person that people go to when they want to communicate a message to the boss, but they're a little nervous about it. You know what I mean? So they go to the two yeah. who's the power behind the throne and they go, Hey, you know, I've been kind of feeling like the boss is uh, mad at me or this, or may I have a suggestion for how he might do stuff. And then the two is so good at, um, delivering the news, you know, like they just know how to frame it perfectly so that the boss hears it and might even think that it's his or her idea <laughs> by the time the two is done with them. And then, and then everyone else is like, yeah, if you really want to talk to the boss, go talk to so-and-so who happens to be a two. Does that, does that sound like a little bit right. like you or? Yeah. I mean, now that you're bringing that up, I'm like, well, that is true. Like a lot of my work, whether it was, you know, volunteer or nonprofit work or whether it was sort of work in you know business world or artist world, I have I have been a lot of times that position as like the right hand person to the leader person. <laughs> I have definitely been that mm -hmm. person many times in many different positions. Yeah, in yeah. fact, uh, sometimes twos I think realize that uh, it's this it's sort of like uh, master sergeants, uh, not generals, win wars. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. It, it, you know, and they're the real leaders. Uh, the generals are sort of uh, abstractions, but the person on the ground, the two, for example, uh, who's so good, by the way, at bringing teams together, they're very, very good because they attract, they're, they're very image conscious, twos, threes, and fours, all in that heart triad, very, very image conscious. And twos make organizations look great to the outside world hmm. and so mm -hmm. they are able to uh, actually recruit people who are attracted to the organization and were attracted to it because of the image that the two projected around it 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had that experience too. Have and you? then had to be like, wait a second, <laughs> let me think about this, you know? Yeah. But even sometimes not organizations, maybe I, I work directly for, but you know, just events I was a part of or things like that, you know, I'm, it's, it's definitely uh, in my wheelhouse to want to curate mm. well and to curate teams well and mm-hmm. to think about where people are strong and putting them in the best place. I mean, yes, that's totally in my wheelhouse mm. too. Do you lead, uh, when you're in situations, do you tend to lead through relationships with people or um, like, for example, are you the kind of leader that people just see walking around, just talking to people all day long? Or are you the type of leader who's at the desk and people have to come to you? And you know what I mean? Like, what? Yeah. Which, which of those I, two I think are you? I, I think I definitely fall more in the relational category. And I think I, I don't like the idea of sort of being uh, the one at the desk that people have to come to, because I feel like if I were in that position, I have, I, I may have more blind spots that way. Whereas if I am more relational, it means I'm interacting with people who are very likely to be different from Mm -hmm. me. And so whatever we're working on or trying to achieve, I have less blind spots that way as I engage them Mm -hmm. because I'm able to pick up on the places where I might not see it that way or I might not be strong in figuring out this Excel sheet (laughs) or, you know, like figuring out how like the numbers crunch. But because I am interacting in a connecting way with someone who does have that strength, then overall for us in our work, that's less of a blind spot we all have. So I sort of feel stronger going about it that way, although it can be less clean cut to do it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely more qualitative than quantitative to do it that way. But I have found the success to me is more satisfying mm-hmm. if I well, do that Well, I mean, uh, twos go to bed in the morning thinking, of, I mean, <laughs> they go to bed in the evening thinking about relationships and for last thing and the first thing they think about in the morning is relationships. And so they lead and actually kind of, I mean, to organize their identity around relationships and how they're doing in relationships and do people approve of me or not approve of me and if they don't approve of me my self-esteem goes way down and my uh if people don't appreciate me um i can become a little like if you're a two you could you could become a little um angry resentful uh when you get tired and you start to feel like you're being taken for granted yeah i think that's definitely a thing like speaking of places to get unstuck I think as I've discovered oh my gosh that's really who I am (laughs) you know like the more I looked into what it means to be a two then having to balance saying no Mm -hmm. having to balance drawing boundaries and that boundaries are healthy Uh, for example I just had uh, someone at the last minute request for me to be a part of an event and for various reasons, um, it could have been a really good event to be a part of. And for other various reasons that were more important to me, it wasn't going to be best for me to be a part of it. It would have been great for the person requesting. It would have met all the things that they wanted and needed, but it really would have met almost none of the things that would have made it good or fulfilling for me to be a part of. And I said no, but I still had to rant with my husband after I said no and talk myself through why I did the right thing. Mm. And so that's like a growth place for me that I said no, because Amina of two years ago would have said yes, would have gotten to the event and thought all the things I thought about this one at the request point, but I would have been there on stage now thinking, I don't know that this was the right thing. I would have been thinking those things, but I would have thought them afterwards. I would have felt that yuck feeling inside that this is not a good use of my time. This is me using energy for this that I could have used for another thing I really care about stuff. So it was real growth for me to say, no, I'm not available, but I still had to talk myself (laughs) through it afterwards. I had to just have that like 20, 30 minutes of rant, like, and then this, and then this, like sort of to talk myself into like, it is okay that you said no to this and Mm -hmm. that it wasn't a good fit for you. And then it's not your job to do what's great for someone else 
when it's not at all great for you. Yeah, you know, uh, my friend Suzanne, she used to say something that I really loved about two. She's a two. And she used to say, um, one of the things that twos have to figure out is, is always ask themselves the question in those situations, is this mine to do? Yeah. Is this mine to do? And so I I, mm-hmm. I often tell to I tell twos or, or, or suggest to them, you know, when people come to you with opportunities and your first reflex, the first word out of your mouth reflexively is, yes, I'd love to help, you know, or yes, I'll Mm -hmm. totally be there because in the moment, even sometimes they're looking in the eyes of the other or in, or listening to the voice in the other for the appreciation and it's intoxicating to them. It's like, oh man, appreciation is like a needle in the arm. You know, that's their needle is like, oh man, I feel loved. I feel approved of, appreciated. And, and then they later on, man, they're like, what was I thinking? Right? Regrets, regrets. Yeah. Complete and utter regrets. <laughs> yeah. So it's so many regrets. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I love what Anne Lamott says. She says, um, in one of her books, she says, no is a full sentence. Yes. I, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Just that no, period, is a full sentence. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't have to actually explain anything after it, you know? That you don't owe people that. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes with twos, because it's so reflexive uh, to say yes and their boundaries are, are so low, you know, I, I just tell them, when, when someone asks you to do something, learn just to say maybe. Right. Give me time to think. Get back to me in three mm-hmm. days. Because... Then they can go to their husband or their partner or their friends and say, should I do this? Cause I, and then ask the questions like, well, is it the best use of your time? Da, da, da. And then also to recruit the courage to say no. <laughs> yes. You know, please, you know, so anyhow. Yes. Um, all right. So I want to go back to your book because in the Enneagram world, like I think in your book, we, we believe that there are messages that are unconscious that people don't even realize are you know kind of running the show or powerfully influencing their personalities and again for those listening when i talk about personality what i'm talking about is the ways that we habitually and often predictably act think and feel uh, in the world on a on a daily basis whether it's for good or for ill we're carrying messages that are you know, under the surface, influencing each type. So let's let's sort of talk through some of the things you got going on in the book, like in terms of the chapters, because I love some of them. Like you've got one in here on marriage, and I totally dug this because you picked John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. <laughs> My engineer, Anthony's got his hands up in the air like you scored a touchdown. Favorite you, jazz yes. record of all time. It is one... Is that your favorite record of all time? Favorite jazz record of all time. And everyone should go see the new John Coltrane documentary, Chasing Train. Have you seen that? Oh, yes. Such yes, a good movie. Netflix. Yes. Uh, caveat from that movie that I love is Santana says before he checks into a hotel room, he always has that record played through once. Then he knows the hotel room is cleansed. <laughs> yes, yes. How cool is that? Isn't it? It's a spiritual record, it. man. It's beautiful. I just remember so great. I, it's the live version that I remember listening to and thinking that that's pretty much perfection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So why did you pick it? I just I discovered John Coltrane in college. And so over the years, it's sort of like I am retroactively have been going back, discovering just his full length albums. I think the first CD I had was sort of the best of. It had Giant Steps and Naima and My Favorite Things. So it's like everything's all mashed together. You're not really hearing the albums like in their entirety that way. And Love Supreme was one of his first albums that I just listened to the whole thing. And it's just, it just amazes me. It's four songs. It's four songs. Yeah, it's four long. Spiritual. Four, yeah, they're like, super long. Like, oh man, I mean, it's spiritual, it's love, it's romance, it's otherworldly in some places. And I just thought there's a lot about love and a lot about marriage that seems to be sort of inherent my ideas of it seem inherent in this work that he created okay well unpack that for me and i want to know what you think is the broken record message that uh that emerges you know what i mean like that ties to coltrane and like how did you weave that all together i think a part of it for me is 
you know, when you hear, if you're just hearing the phrase, a love supreme, and you are equating that to marriage, it sounds like, oh, yes, uh, especially maybe if you aren't married. Yeah. <laughs> it might sound like, oh, yes, that is that is exactly, you know, what marriage is like. But when I really listen to the album itself, it is beautiful. And it is chaotic in some places. And it does sound wounded mm. and uh, painful in some places. And not to say that marriage itself is painful, but to say that life can be a painful experience. And when you're married to someone, you are walking through all of life with them. Mm. Uh, when life is amazing and great, and when life is really hard and you are not sure how you're going to make it through each day, you're walking through that with someone. And I thought that was such a great musical uh, representation to me of what I've experienced in just, just our six years of marriage. Cause I definitely was acknowledging in the book, listen, guys, we're just a first grader in marriage. You know, we can read and um, eat snacks and share, you know, <laughs> we're, we're early on in our journey, but um, just to try to explain, I guess, how I have experienced marriage, I thought a love supreme was a great metaphor in a way. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I just want to circle back to something. And I think it's for each type on the Enneagram, it's probably a little different. I think marriage is painful to, a lot of the time. I mean, not a lot of the time, mm -hmm. but I love my wife. I've been married 30 years, okay? Wow. So it's not like, you know, I, I've, been in, I've been in that situation for a long time. And, and I think there are, are seasons of, of great joy and of healing and then other seasons that are really painful because marriage just has a way of, of you know, bringing to the surface all of your stuff, man. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, you realize that all human communities have elements of disappointment. You know, you come into them with ideals and then you realize, oh, this is not as ideal as I thought. Now, for a two, you know, um, the message uh, that they hear that they often don't realize is running the show is that it's okay uh, um, or the I should say it's not okay to have your own needs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's under the surface for a lot of twos as well as maybe the message um, you can't be loved for who you are. You can only be loved if you meet the needs of others. So, you know, yeah. okay, so tell me, you're nodding your head. By those of you who don't know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, we're on Skype together, so I, I see you're <laughs> nodding your head. What is that? What, where does, that, does that ring a bell for you? Yeah, completely does. And in a lot of ways, my husband's temperament is a huge blessing for me in that because he uh, tested as a nine, even though he's very, he's very, I wouldn't say against, but he's not pro these types of, personality things. He's very like, I will not be put in the box of, you know, that. So it was like a big deal to even get him to like acquiesce to Enneagram in any way. But he came up as a nine. And one of the ways that him being a nine helps my being a two or the weaknesses, I should say, I guess, of my being a two is that there are a lot of ways that because he just is a very laid back person in general, um, I am a lot more demanding of myself or demanding of myself to do what I think other people are asking of me. And so I remember this like early moment in our marriage where for some reason, I don't know where this idea came from, Ian, but I have this idea that like, it is a bad wife move for there to be dishes in the sink at the end of the day. <laughs> I mean, this is like my early newlywed stuff, you know, when you're just trying to figure out like, I was like, what is a good wife? What does a good wife do? And for some reason, I had this arbitrary idea in my mind that like a good wife would never leave dishes in the sink. Like she should have time during the day. I don't know when she was going to have time when she's running a business and <laughs> writing books or whatever, but she should have time to like get those dishes out of the sink. And I almost was in tears one night because it was midnight and I looked at that sink full of dishes and just went, oh man, like, I'm so sorry, babe, that I, you know, I couldn't, that was my first time really saying out loud to him, I guess, that this was this expectation I was holding over, you know, myself. And he just looked at me and he said to me, first of all, um, those dishes going to be okay in the sink. That's because he's such a nine. <laughs> Nines 
In fact, if he's a real nine, if, like two or three days later, he might say that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, first of all, they're okay in the sink. I, I don't care about that. And secondly, it's not on you. Mm. We both live here, you know? So tomorrow morning, I'll wake up. I'll take care of the dishes or during the day when I have time to get to them, I get to them, but we're here together as partners. So you're that those things are not just on you, which was sort of this relief of the weight. I think mm. that I experienced, you know, being a two. Yeah. You know, so it, it, do you know what your wing is yet? I don't know yet. Okay. I so let me, it might be a three. I think it might be a three. Yeah. So listen to the two with ones, you know, I think, like the two with with ones they're really concerned with doing things right or doing mm. things like a properly right and so i yeah. hear a little bit of that in your sort of self-talk mm. there and they, they want to be seen as responsible and um they tend to be more critical of themselves than twos with three wings mm. and more prone to guilt uh yeah. than oh, twos yeah. with a three um and like a two of the three, they're more ambitious, uh, they're more image conscious, uh, and competitive, um, mm. and uh, they're more concerned about relationships than a two with a one wing. What which of those two, what are some of those two sounds more like you? I mean, now that we're talking about it, I feel like the one probably sounds more like me. I definitely have an achiever and a performer there, mm-hmm. but I don't. I almost wonder sometimes if that's due to my upbringing more than that's the essence of who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would say my ability to be competitive is very limited. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> it's very limited. I just, I, I, I wasn't a good athlete for that reason. Hmm. If I'm competitive, I'm competing against Amina. I'm, I'm competing with her. It's very rare that I find motivation externally that way of like looking at someone else and going, I must have the things they have. If I'm competing, I'm definitely competing against my own bar I've raised for Mm. myself. Yeah. Right. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Uh, I'm going to give you two. um, uh, Two things that tend to motivate people. Um, and they're different. One is, so you tell me which one you identify with more. One would be uh, that you you have a need to avoid conflict at all costs and to maintain connection, maintain the status quo, uh, and uh, an interior atmosphere of peace and harmony and you don't want anything to disturb it. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second one would be that you have a need to be needed by others. You have a, a deep thirst or hunger to be appreciated to, you're actually, your attention is always sort of scanning the environment for signs that you're being appreciated or approved of. Um, I go on to this. What, which of those two do you, you tend to identify with more? Oh, I think definitely the second one. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is, and, and this is for everybody, nines and twos often get confused. Huh. Uh, they, they, people, I mean, I was just, I could so this weekend I just did a, 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 we're a, a conference uh, for two days teaching the Enneagram with about 500 people. And I bet you 50, you know, 50 times. It happens every time I lead a workshop, nines come up and they go, or twos come up and they go, I'm not sure if I'm a two or a nine. Huh. And uh, in part because both twos and nines, and I'm putting the thrown up air quotes here, are very nice. They're 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 right. they're nice right. people, and mm-hmm. uh, they're very supportive, and they are great servants, both of them. But their motivations are very different as to why. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, it's it's you can help them pretty quickly figure out if it's a nine or a two but i i was just checking you to make sure because you're new as you're a newbie to say i wonder if it's maybe you're a nine identifying as a two but if you really get that message second i saw your head bobbing there then chances are yeah you've 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 typed yourself correctly all right so yeah uh back to your but let me ask you a question is that what i just described of the nine does that sound like your husband absolutely does yeah all right well you yeah 
you tell him to take this personality thing serious called it you you better i mean he's like this is a guy that like when everybody was on the myers briggs when that was like the thing everybody was discussing and people would be like which which one are you on the myers briggs my husband would say he was wtf like that's what we're dealing with right <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. very resistant that is so funny <laughs> i am an ewtf <laughs> <laughs> we were at an elevator at a conference and I was like what are you doing he's just telling the truth he is just always. telling the truth man those nines too man they have trouble not telling the truth I'm always telling people if you need someone to lie on the stand for you in court never ask a nine to do it Mm-mm. Mm-mm. they're terrible liars man they're like guileless you know they get this look on their face like ah they just tell the truth it's not good Mm -mm. all right so how to fix a broken record i want to keep going back to this um and then i want i i want to try and talk you into doing a spoken word uh piece for us oh look at you panicking you're panicking looking a little panic all right i'll fix it all right (laughs) all right so um the 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 other one you had on here it's about dating one of the chapters is about dating right and the, the song yeah. you chose was i am by beyonce yes yes it was her album i am sasha fierce it's the only double album as far as i know okay that beyonce mm-hmm. ever released okay so how could what's so, the relationship between that song like what's the message in that song that people kind of with a broken record message in that that relates to dating Well, in part, some of it's nostalgia for me Mm. because, you know, I discovered I was in love listening to that album that like my first sort of adult, I have fallen in, I have fallen head over heels in love with someone. I mean, unfortunately for me, which is, which is a bit characteristic maybe to the album that I was falling in love with someone that it was never going to work, you know? Yeah. Um, So I I think that might've played a role in it too, but sort of hearing, it's like this album full of reflections on love when it works, on love when it doesn't work, on, you know, from her perspective, the things she would do if she could walk in the world of dating like she were a boy. I mean, there are a lot of like interesting I love that song. I loved that. I still love that song. I mean, well, first of all, the melody is so slamming. Um, yeah. And her performance of it, of course, as her performances of just about everything, you know, uh, is amazing. But yeah, that's a fiery, fiery record. Yeah. I mean, and I think, too, now that we're talking about it, which is interesting, you don't hear Beyonce talking about this part as much anymore. So I wonder if it's still true. But she had this idea at that time that this woman she was on stage is Sasha Fierce, Mm. that that person is different from everyday Beyonce. And I was actually talking to some friends recently about how my sort of stage performance and even my work, this book, my poetry, it's all coming out to be more me. So I actually feel now I have less of a Sasha Fierce, Mm. that all of it is really same it's the same as i am in conversation as i would be in a coffee house as i would be on stage somewhere and i feel like in a certain way that seems to be true in beyonce's work too that has grown since this time of sasha fierce but Mm -hmm. yeah i felt like that was pretty characteristic of my dating life because it was a very strange time (laughs) uh did you have a consistent uh pattern in your thoughts or your actions your decisions or your feelings that consistently tripped you up in dating? I'm trying to think of would there be one thing. Or one of of any. One of, you know, maybe it's one of a bunch, but that, you know, sort of consistently, you know, it's like uh, limiting, you know, or like limiting for you. I'll tell you what my gut answer was. hearing you ask that my gut answer is some things I had to unlearn from church Mm, or from church culture Mm -hmm. I would say was probably the most consistent theme in my dating life that having been a kid who grew up in church setting uh, what I would say would be considered very conservative church setting particularly as it relates to ideas about dating and its connection or not to marriage and navigating that way past not way past, but past my early 20s, 
because I think there was this idea in youth group that we were being told certain things, maybe in the hopes that by the time we were 22 or 23, we were going to be married. And many of us discovered into our 30s, into our 40s, we were not married. Mm-hmm. And so what do we what, what do we do with the gap between what I was told when I was 16 and now that I might be 27 or 35 or 41 navigating this? Uh, what are the things that actually don't work? <laughs> like the ideas about that that didn't work. The idea that every person I date should be considered as spouse material. Mm-hmm. That dating could not be good for me and be casual. Um, a lot of those ideas I really had to unlearn and learn better ways to walk through that. Yes. Yeah. So. This is so um, amazing because, uh, one, is I love the word unlearn, because as little children, we learn messages, you know, and we we carry them with us. And again, this is Enneagram stuff. What you're talking about is one of the things that the Enneagram is so wonderful at is getting people to think about what are these beliefs that I'm not even, I've never challenged that I have never stepped yeah. back and looked at over my shoulder that have been chasing me and making me run to look over my shoulder and go, who's chasing me? What beliefs are chasing me and making me run like a mad person? And uh, that, that I can, so, and there's one of them, right? Like you, you stop and you realize the messages that I picked up about dating. Now they may have been very helpful as a little child, you know, they get me right. through childhood mm-hmm. maybe, but they don't work in adulthood and they're, no. they're making me miserable. Uh, and, and I, I actually have a choice as to whether or not I want to continue to allow that belief to run the show or not may take a while to get it out of my, my thinking, but you know, it's so important as adults to go back and do the work and say, nah, this ain't working no more. Yeah. Oh, and it was so empowering. I mean, it was hard, but it was empowering to feel like I had choices. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like. Whew, okay. I mean, like, I'll give you an example. I definitely grew up traditional church background where women are not supposed to be initiating anything in, in, a, in, a, in, in an opposite sex dating scenario. It's like you, you should not be initiating things with a man as a woman in church. That's how I was raised. You don't call him first. You don't ask him out. That was really bad behavior. Well, then I got into my 20s and early 30s and had to be like, first of all, if I'm somewhere... I can say hi, <laughs> like I can speak and say hello to a man and be confident in that and initiate conversation. And that didn't make me a harlot or didn't make like the did you Hold on, did you just use the word harlot? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yes. a word we got to return to daily language in, in, in English because I mean harlot. <laughs> You know, doesn't it? It actually sounds like what it is, right? Harlot, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. no. no it would have, and it must have been very hard, actually, for a two that is so relational to be told, don't be relational in that setting. Yeah. You know, in other words, don't yeah. be assertive and, you know, sort of pull back on the, that relational side of you and, and wait. Gosh, that would be hard for a two. Yeah, be demure and and shout out to the people who are demure. I'm just not. Right, that's right. No, that is not in your uh, your core no. your core makeup. So, all right, I wanna I wanna just let people know though about some beliefs that I think different types have, and and uh, because it, just to go through like these are unconscious beliefs that different people have. I'm gonna borrow some from Riso and Hudson, maybe re- reword them a little bit. So, for example, for for ones, the the message they hear growing up, either either explicitly or directly, right? I mean, implicitly or directly. So sometimes the messages aren't actually expressed, but right. you, you pick them up uh, from the way your parents look at you, or your coaches, or your teachers, or they get picked up because people stroke you for different things, right? Or or you perceive them as being given, even though they're not. You know what I mean? Right. Like, but you're picking mm-hmm. them up, right? So for a one the improver or the reformer or the perfectionist, maybe it's the message is it's not okay to make mistakes. I mean, you can't make mistakes, make a mistake. The world's going to fall apart for twos. Mm -hmm. It's not okay to have your own needs. And that leads to you taking Mm -hmm. care of everybody else's in order to win love. Right. For, for threes, it would be, it's not okay to have your own feelings and identity. So in other words, you have to become whoever you're with 
to uh, get your sense of identity from the mask that you project and mm. uh, to fulfill the mission, which is to win love through accomplishment, not by being mm. just who you are. Fours would be, no, Risa and Hudson say it's not okay to be too functional or too happy. I, I'm a four. I'm not sure that really captures it. Um, I think one of the messages that, that, that fours here very powerfully, though, is... Um, uh, it's not okay to be ordinary and uh, you have to be special and unique in order to be loved. You know, mm. uh, fives, uh, they hear a message that it's not, according to Hudson, Risto and Hudson, it's not okay to be too comfortable in the world. Sixes, it's not okay to trust yourself. Uh, sevens, it's not okay to depend on anyone for anything, right? That's for the huh. enthusiasts. Eights would be, it's not okay to be vulnerable, right? Or to trust anyone. They're the challengers. And for nines, the peacemaker, see if this sounds consistent with your husband. It, it would be, it's not okay to assert yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not okay to, to you know, um, to, to believe actually that your presence matters as much as the, pre- the other people's presence. You know, like mm-hmm. just, you mm-hmm. know, go along to get along. Don't, don't, you know, put yourself out there too much, you know. And does that sound a little bit like your husband? Yeah, that does sound right. He's very, he's very much like, wants to make the peace, keep the peace, doesn't want to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. Like it has to be a very like critical moment for him to go, okay, now I, I must rock the boat about this. I know something's a huge deal if he feels that way about it. Yes. And, and in uh, Enneagram literature, that's called right action. It's the moment the nine mm. says, oh, this is going to probably cause conflict, which I hate more than anything else in the world. But this is important enough that I am willing to endure conflict for the sake of it. Yeah. I have to have a, a honest uh, Enneagram moment with you, Ian, and tell you that obviously I have had friends for many years talking to me about Enneagram and they were so excited, but they were all my white friends and I love them so much, but they have steered me wrong in some other ways. They were huge fans of Mumford and Sons mm-hmm. and they kept going on and on about Mumford and Sons and they were like, it's changing my life, Mumford and Sons. So Enneagram was actually uh, Mumford and Sons for me for a while. <laughs> that is awesome i was just like i don't really trust you guys if you guys love it the way you loved mumford and whatever this enneagram is (laughs) if you loved it the way you loved mumford and sons i should not trust your opinions i'm glad you're enjoying that i'm not going to do it so i was very resistant about this and uh, a friend of mine who's a black woman named joy bailey hey joy she's the one who was like have you done the enneagram she was the first black woman ever talked to me about it Wow. And I was like, well, I haven't done it, but why are you doing it? Do you listen to Mumford and Sons? <laughs> <laughs> and no, she, said, she said, no, I listen to Mary J. This is a Mary she's J like, personality I, test. Is that it? She's like, I do not listen to Mumford and Sons. However, I do vouch for Enneagram. Wow. And she like sat me down. We were on vacation together and she sat me down and like talked me through the whole thing. So now I know Enneagram is not the same as I felt about Mumford and Sons. And I'm happy about that. <laughs> mm. Well, you've actually just really inspired me on something, which is to have, you know, I've, I, when we've had people of color on the show before, um, you know, I have asked the question about race and personality, you know, like how yeah. particularly I've asked it with uh, black women who are eights challengers. Like, what's it like mm. to be an aggressive, uh, angry uh, black woman in America like how do you you know what I'm saying like and so let me ask you the question what's it like to be uh, or do you perceive that there's a difference uh, racially between uh, black twos helpers givers and white twos and givers and you could do that also with gender around women and men like do you right, yeah. has that been something you've thought about or is it even a relevant question is it a dumb question even I don't think I really thought about it until we were talking here. And I was trying to think, does that make it? You know, I was, I was really contemplating that a little bit earlier in our conversation. I think a part of it is there is sort of the myth of the strong black woman. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way Shaniqua Walker Barnes writes about this in Too Heavy a Yoke. It would be really interesting to see how her ideas like coincide with, with Enneagram here. But of course, one of the things she writes about is underneath the idea, the myth of the strong black woman is sort of this very pervasive American idea of this black woman who takes care of the family. We see that very present in the help. And that's a big part of our American mythology, even if we think about 
times of slavery and black women feeding the babies of the white family that owned them. I mean, there's all this idea that even if we think about the elections recently, we had some local elections happen, I want to say in Alabama, right, where everyone mm -hmm. was like, this election was saved by the black women. And I've heard some other uh, black women leaders push back on this idea that we don't want to saddle black women with this idea that they have to fix it. And I resonate a lot with that. And, and that was present a lot in uh, Shaniqua Walker Barnes writings in, in Too Heavy a Yoke, where she's talking about it doesn't mean it's bad to be strong as a black woman. That's beautiful. Be strong. But don't let the myth of that strength saddle you. Mm. Don't let the myth of that caretaking saddle you. You also take care of yourself, that that's a part of being strong. So I do think there are some layers in that caretaking for me. Like even when we were talking, I think it came to mind earlier, Ian, we were talking about events and, and uh, working with people and helping uh, them curate the image, right? And so my presence at a lot of events and in workspaces as a Black woman can help sell to the outside world that that place is diverse, mm. that that place is welcoming of people of color just by the nature that I'm standing there, whether or not I've said I condone the place or whether or not I've said these things about it, my being there says those things. And so for me, it has been discerning more um, what are the spaces where I think you said this question, is this mine to do? Mm -hmm. I think that's a very powerful question for black women who are twos to constantly answer because it's for you personally, but it's also as a black woman, is that my work mm. to do? And if it's not, I need to let other people do their work, particularly as we're talking about um, issues of race and justice and class sometimes too. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've really inspired me because I now what I want to do is uh, I want to have uh, representatives from uh, my universe space of uh, my friends who are gay and lesbian friends and my uh, Asian friends, my women, uh, men. I, you know what I mean? Like I want to get yeah. a bunch of people on the show that are going to talk about personality type, culture that they emerge from, struggle. And uh, how is all of this, not just, you know, what messages are there, but how do these cultures, like when you when you put pressure on the coal, it becomes a diamond, right? So how, how do these different folks, when cultural pressures bear down on them, how does it also inform type? Like on this weekend I was just on, uh, I had five or six Korean women ask me, would you meet with us, right? And I said, sure. Yeah. So uh, it was after a talk, and they, they wanted to know, like, how, because of the culture we grew up in and the messages that we received, how did it contribute to our type? Because we're really having trouble figuring out our types because yeah. of the powerful messages we picked up that are kind of clouding it. And we don't know. So essentially what they were saying is we don't know who we are really because yeah. of uh, what we were told we were supposed to be. Do you know Joe Saxton at all? Oh, yes, I know Joe. Okay. He's my wonderful friend. All right, so yeah. we had Joe on a while back, a wonderful episode. And Joe said something to me. I hope I can quote it right. She said, the Enneagram shows people or shows us who we were before people told us who we were supposed to be. Yeah. Now that's something, yeah. isn't it? It's powerful. Yeah, man, that was, yeah. yeah. Who we were before the culture or our parents or whoever told us who we were supposed to be in order, for example, to get our needs met for esteem and approval for safety and security and for mastery and being able to affect the environment around us okay well we got to wrap up here because uh i i want to make sure i have time left to hear you do a, a a spoken word i mean this is your thing man come on don't don't look at me like like i'm like i'm imposing this is your thing i gotta hear a spoken word poem before before i let you go <laughs> let me try to find something here I'll I'll do a bit of a newer one. I I'm still uh, wanting to get this memorized. Is it right here in front of me? Oh yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, so this theme of being here is coming up in my work a lot, and I've been listening to uh, Kamasi Washington. Got to see him live a couple mm. of months ago, and he has this fantastic song called "Rhythm Changes" that has this 
recurring line, no matter what happens, I'm here. So I'll read you, um, I'll read you a couple of stanzas of this. Remember the time life wanted to fight you in a boxing match you never agreed to, punched you in the gut, hit you straight in the chest, stole the wind out the inside, you remember rock bottom. How asphalt and concrete left tread marks on your cheeks, how you thought your knees would never find the strength to kneel, certainly not to stand, definitely not to walk, never to run again. How you never thought you'd say, much less live anything like the words get up, but you did. You survived, you are here, breathing. Remember how the words they said punctured your skin, made you bleed, you applied pressure and yet continued to bleed, made you cry, made you question everything, made you doubt yourself, made you doubt God and goodness and grace. How you learned that truth be the best thread for suturing wounds. How time turns a stitch into new skin. How in the old places of pain, new life can find its footing, even when that footing is shaky. How overcoming didn't show up in the clothes you thought it would, but you did. You overcame. You are here, breathing. Mm. Wow, thank you. Um, I, uh, I'm such a believer that when poetry is done, there should almost be a mandatory 30-second silence, uh, but probably would confuse our listeners. <laughs> right, right. If I, if I gave it to you. So people should go back and, and re-listen to that portion and then give it 30 seconds to kind of soak into the ground the way water does uh, into to dry earth and... Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for, for being on Typology. It was really rich. I want to tell people that they can actually, you have a podcast that was a promotional asset for your, your book. It's called How to yeah. Fix a Broken Record, right? It's a 10, yes. 10 episodes that unpacks themes from the book and you got a different guest on each episode. You talk about things like love and love and faith and life and the broken records revealing the soundtracks of different people's lives, right? Does that kind of get it? Yeah, that's a great gist. First episode was an interview with my grandma. So if no one listens to anything else, they should catch her episode. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, I bet it's wonderful. And folks can find you uh, on on Twitter. Uh, your is Amina B, right? B E E. Yes, is that Amina your, B. your B -E -E. Twitter handle? Yeah. So A M E N A B B double E. And uh, on Instagram, again, uh, Amina B, B E E, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, yeah. I, you're, you're cool. <laughs> you're cool, Ian. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate uh, it. I know. Well, listen, uh, we're going to, we're going to have you back and I, uh, maybe we'll revisit, um, this whole, this, the, this topic that I, that you've really sort of cracked open, uh, just talking about race, personality and class and, um, how these things affect uh, the ways that we think, act, and feel, um, some of yeah. which may be good, some of which may, may need to be acknowledged as a broken record that has to be yeah. chucked. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, peace and grace to you, and good luck on the book. Don't everybody forget uh, her book, uh, Amina's book, How to Fix a Broken Record, Thoughts on Vinyl Records, Awkward Relationships, and Learning to Be Myself. Thanks again, Amina. We'll see you later. Thank you. Hey, while we're... Yes, we did. <laughs>that was a great show thank you amina brown y'all hear that music that's playing right now that is a love supreme by john coltrane maybe the most maybe one of the most important jazz recordings of all time a love supreme also one of amina brown's favorite songs as you heard on our show today okay twos i want to give you some strategies for self-development here we go um, so check it out, twos. I want you in the next, uh, you know, couple of weeks uh, to be practicing asking uh, for something you need once a day. Like twos, I have been so focused all their lives on meeting the needs of others that they tend to be really out of touch with their own needs. So 
I want you to ask for something you need once a day and do it unashamedly, all right? Second is, uh, I want you to spend some time alone developing independent interests and just being okay alone. It's hard for uh, a type that derives its uh, self-esteem so much from relationship to spend too much time alone. Uh, and so that's up for you to do in the next couple of weeks is to develop some interests uh, that are independent of other people and, and, uh, and some autonomy as well. Um, look, you need to practice some appropriate giving. What does that mean? It means to ask before giving. Sometimes twos, because they're so attuned to other people's feelings and needs, they can identify what the need is that another person has and then go ahead and meet it without ever asking, hey, can I do this for you? Which can feel intrusive or smothering to people at times, and the two doesn't pick up on that. So twos, I want you to start practicing appropriate giving. And here's one that might be hard for you. I want you to practice uh, uh, one or two acts a week of anonymous giving. Whoa, giving without expecting or getting the fix of appreciation and approval in the moment. You know, you all can pick it up in the eyes and the body language or in the words of other people. You know, oh, I so appreciate you. Thank you for doing it. And it's intoxicating for you. What would happen if you decided just to try giving uh, anonymously this week just to, as a spiritual discipline? I think that might be a really cool thing for twos to do. Well, that's all I got time for today. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Would you just pop over to uh, our uh, website, www.typologypodcast.com. That's T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y podcast.com. And let us know so we uh, can bring on future guests like uh, Amina or to suggest uh, some questions or comments or ideas for other guests that we can have on in the future. Anthony, my engineer, producer, my buddy, thank you. And my friends, remember until next time, the words of the great author Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. See ya.